This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. This is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. And I know I say this every week. Uh, I have a very special guest this week. But this week, I really have a very special guest. Uh, Some of you guys know I'm a bit of a jazz fan and... Uh, somebody I've seen uh, a number of times who always puts on a phenomenal show is guitarist and vocalist and raconteur, John Pizzarelli. Uh, we we touched on about half of the questions I wanted to get to. There's so much more stuff to talk about the music industry and how things are changing, uh, what's going on with that entire shift to digital and, and how the new world has just completely turned music upside down, especially in the uh, realm of jazz, which isn't uh, a popular music the way pop and rap and hip hop is today, but it is still something that is appreciated by uh, people of finer taste and and understanding of, of music history. Anyway, John was great. He spoke with us for about an hour and a half and graced us with a couple of songs on his um, guitar. I think if you're a music fan at all, and if you're especially if you're a jazz fan, you're going to find today's show uh, especially delightful. So without any further ado, my conversation with John Pizzarelli. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Pizzarelli. He is a famous jazz guitarist, vocalist who has played with, gee, just about everybody in the world of music. I know we normally focus on people in finance and investing, but today we're going to look at the business of music and jazz in particular. Um, Welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So a little background about John. You have recorded, let's see how wrong my my research is. You've (laughs) recorded 23 albums. Of your own music, twenty-three and covers. singing solo albums. Yeah, you've appeared as either a featured guitarist or vocalist on forty other albums. Yeah, that's about right. And then you've appeared as a session player on on a bunch of other ones. Hundred, who yeah, knows? That'd like, be good like lots. Yeah. Um, you you have in the past you've toured extensively with your own trio, your own quartet. We'll talk a little bit about the big bands. You're mm-hmm. touring with now for the Sinatra Centennial. Yeah, we'll, doing some things, right? We'll get to that. And um, you've also you've played with some of the the biggest names in the industry, haven't you? Well, I've opened for Frank Sinatra. I've played with Rosemary Clooney, James Taylor, Natalie Cole, Ricky Lee Jones, and Paul McCartney. No one we've ever heard of, though. No, yeah, some of you might know. But. <laughs> um, and John is also, in addition to the author of a book, World on a String, about his adventures in the music. Uh, world. <laughs> he is also the host of a weekly radio program co-hosted with the vocalist, Jessica Malaski, who also happens to be your wife. We share a bed. There you go. And, <laughs> and a uh, radio mic. That's right. And, um, you know, whenever I read reviews of yours, they always talk about your soft voice, your knack for up-tempo swing, and your charming stage presence. Oh, there you go. That's the triple threat. There it is. So- let, let's jump right into this. Uh, you come from a family of musicians. Your dad, Bucky, really well-known, Bucky Pizzarelli, mm-hmm. famous guitarist, literally played with everybody back in the day, still yeah, he, playing today. Yeah, he said he's played with everybody except uh, Bing Crosby, I think was the only one that he missed, he missed along the way. 
So he, um, at one point in time, he was uh, the guitarist for the Tonight Show band. He was on staff at NBC, and uh, so he played for the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson when it was in New York. Uh, and then uh, when they went to L.A., he stayed here because the family was pretty well-rooted in New Jersey. I remember getting the person-to-person call from Doc Severinsen looking for my father. And then when Doc came back a couple of years later... We went back to see him after the show, and it was him and another a trumpet player named Johnny Frosk. And uh, Doc looked at the two of them and said, you're the only two guys I wanted to go to California. So, and they're so, the ones who stayed yeah, back. Yeah, they're the ones who stayed back. <laughs> and your uncle's also a professional musician, My right? father's uncles were, uh, uh, one was uh, a guitar player who went out with all the big bands. His name was Bobby Dominic. And then there was Peter Dominic, who stayed around New Jersey and... Worked in the silk mills in Patterson, New Jersey, but on the weekends played gigs uh, on the banjo and so guitar. So music around the house, constantly growing up, no getting away from it. Did you know you always wanted to be a musician, or were there other temptations career-wise? No, I think I, it, I just fell into doing it. You know, I was it was the one thing... When I was in high school, you'd play a dance. You'd make $25. You'd, you know, you'd make $50. If it was a big deal in 1977, have $50 in your pocket. <laughs> so... It was just something that we were doing. I was still playing baseball a little bit uh, through high school, but uh, evidently you have to be able to hit to be a baseball player. Especially the curveball. That's yes. really tough to, uh, <laughs> yes. and that for breaking. Me, even the fastball. <laughs> oh, really? So no baseball career. Not, no baseball career. Not going to play for the Red Sox. No. But uh, but I am, um, it was just, uh, I had a lot of fun playing these gigs. and uh, And then I would still have gigs uh, in bars around New Jersey and New York uh, playing like cover bands and then make real money working with my father on jazz gigs. So what was the lure of rock and roll in those days? So we're about the same age. Maybe I'm uh, you got uh, you're born in 60, I'm born in 61. Yeah. But we came up with the Beatles, the Stones, yeah. the Who. Was there a giant lure of becoming a rock god? One well, day, I or? think what I wanted to do was I wanted to write songs, and I like Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Billy Joel. Billy Joel, probably in particular, and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So I was writing all these songs, and I would uh, had equipment to do stuff in my uh, room where I could set up and make demos of all these things. So I would I would quietly keep that thing going and try to figure out how I was going to eventually shop all that stuff, you know, and get it out there. But in the meantime, I was out working with my dad. My dad said I was the only guy playing jazz to support his rock and roll habit. Usually that, it was the that, other way around. <laughs> well, that's kind of the way things have developed these days. Although, you know, it's not the business it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it's totally changed. We're going to definitely talk about that a lot more in, in the upcoming segments. Um, let's talk about Nat King Cole in the last two minutes we have. Sure. Huge influence on you. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the thing is that when I heard the Nat Cole trio on record... It's a long story that I got to it, but there they were. The records were re-released in 1980. The best of the Nat King Cole Trio Parts 1 and 2. I, my father said, go find them. I found the records, brought them home, played them, and he said, you understand? <laughs> and I went, that's it, because it was it was the anti-night uh, and day, and I get a kick out of you. It was Route 66, Straighten Up and Fly Right, and Frim Fram Sauce. And, and all Honeysuckle s- Rose in that same run? Yep, and all the songs that uh, someone who was 20 could sing. Uh, on gigs and things, it was it fit me perfectly. On jazz gigs, not on rock and roll. Right gigs. on my da- yeah, and then even on my own little gigs, I could start to play them too. I had this sort of eclectic le- repertoire because of Nat Cole. So let's fast forward a few years later. What is it, 1995? You released Dear Mr. Cole. Yeah, then uh, I had a I had a group going, and then uh, 
Ikiyoshi Hirakawa from the Japan label of RCA uh, recommended that I do a, uh, said, we'd like to, you to do a record with Benny Green and Chris McBride, who are real hot and fantastic jazz musicians. And after a long discussion, I said, sure, okay. And and they picked all the songs, and I made this record. And, it was, and at that time, was uh, it sold pretty well. It was a good record for me. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is jazz guitarist and singer John Pizzarelli. We've been talking about his mentors and people who influenced him when he began his career. Let's start with your dad, Bucky Pizzarelli. What was it like having a father who was really a renowned jazz guitarist? Well, it was actually, it was quite interesting because, you know, we didn't really know about, like, a lot of these people were coming over the house. I think, the the, like, to have, uh, we always knew when Benny Goodman was coming over because we were all sent upstairs. Don't come (laughs) down, you know. So we knew, you know, Benny Goodman was somebody anyway because he was the king of swing. Except when he was napping in your parents' bed. Yeah, sleep on the, you know, he'd come over. Fully dressed, suit and tie. He'd he'd keep the pants off and have the socks on still so you wouldn't ruin the crease, you know. Uh, In the pants. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you'd have uh, Les Paul and Zoot Sims and Slam Stewart. And although they may not have been household names, Les Paul was. Uh, you still had these guys who had incredible careers and you really didn't know that much about their careers until like years later you said, oh my God, I was sitting in a room with Slam Stewart, the questions I could have asked this guy, you know. So it was really fun to be around the guys and, and, and the idea of watching them hang out together was as fun as watching them play together. And I, it, was, it was in watching them hang out saying, gee, I, these are the guys I want to hang out with. So the only way to hang out with them was to learn Honeysuckle Rose. You had to learn their language and it was all those songs. So you could sit in and then after the song, you could listen to somebody tell a story. So that's why you wanted to be part of that group. So who of this incredible parade of musicians coming through the Pizzarelli household in New Jersey, who was a early mentor for you? Was it just your dad? Was it I think the big people? one was that my that my father was really the, the mentor because he, he, he always steered you in the right direction. You know, And what I managed to do when we started to do gigs together, I always drove so uh, in the Datsun 210, and I, I would make cassettes of all these records that he was on. Like just a, a track from this one, a track from that one, one with Zoot Sims, one with Joe Venuti, one with, with all these different guys. And I'd put it on and say, you want to hear some music? Yeah, boom. And, I'm, and I'd drive, and then he'd listen to it because he didn't really listen to the records that he made. They right. were all in the house. I'd say, what was it like working with that guy? Oh, well, I got to tell you, well, that guy was unbelievable. You know, he'd tell a Joe Venuti story. He'd talk about Zoot Sims and the guys who were making the music that supported all the great guys, like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra or Woody Herman or Nat Cole, were these guys who were all in the house, you know. So it was interesting to know, hear them play and then hear what they had to say about all those guys. And, and then, was- and you got more excited about being around them and learning them. You know, you, you always heard this style of music like swing jazz made popular by Count Basie and Oscar Peterson and Benny Goodman played at such a high level. You were like, well, that's what I want to do. I mean, that's, it's not old fashioned to me. That's, you know, when you hear it played like that, it's as good as anything. And, and still contemporary and still modern right. and not at all dated. Sure. You know, every now and then you'll hear an old, scratchy recording and you'll he- you could hear how dated it is. But when, and we'll talk about your band in the next segment, but when I hear some of your contemporary arrangements of either the Great American Songbook or anything that Sinatra did from the songbook, they're very fresh, they're very modern, it doesn't seem at all dated. Well, we use the, the the guys who all participate in the making of those records, who arrange and do those things, are guys who 
come from the same place, from studying that stuff, wanting to be part of that, or playing with famous people when they were young also, and said, well, I want to take that as a foundation and go from there. It's the same thing with me with the Nat Cole Trio. We use it as a foundation, you know, through my 20s and early 30s, and then took off from there when we started to apply it to other uh, people who were influential and things like that. So, so let's talk about some of the people you've met and played with. You, you mentioned you met Les Paul when you were young. Did you ever get to sit in with him? Yeah, we. my father and I did uh, a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> we went to a... Uh, he used to play all over the place, and we, we actually played together at a place called the Hanover Trail Steakhouse in Ramsey, New Jersey. He was playing there on a Sunday night with his son, and he had all, you know, all those tapes making all that music, and he was playing How High the Moon and everything. And he saw my dad and I, and he said, you got to come play. Come on up. And we got up and played with him. The funny thing was is that I saw him play once with a musician where if the musician started to get too fancy, he would pull his plug out on the guitar <laughs> so the sound would go dead. So I, I was saying, I don't want to be... On purpose. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to sit next to where he could pull the plug out. So I sat on the other side of him. So instead, when I was playing and people were like applauding while I was playing, he just started detuning my guitar. So, <laughs> the tough one. Yeah, he's messed with all the picks. One, one of my great regrets when I first moved into the city 100 years ago, I lived on 17th and 3rd. Oh, man. And Les Paul played every Tuesday at Fat Tuesdays. Fat Tuesdays. It was one of those things. Oh, it's it's right there, like the corner, fifty feet. Oh, I gotta go. Yeah, never went. Yeah, my one one of my biggest musical. It is regrets. one of the great things about the city is that they there's the things that go on like that, and you always say, I gotta go there. <laughs> I want to do that. It's right here, and unless you make a concerted effort, right. it doesn't happen. Um, so you you got to see Benny Goodman in his underwear, but did you ever get to play with him? I played with him once. We were going to a gig in Connecticut. My father said, "Let's stop and see Benny." We pulled into Benny's place. I think he called and said we were coming. And Benny was sitting in a chair, and he would always try to find a, a reed for his clarinet. He was always looking for the perfect reed. And we had the guitars. And he said, get the guitars. And we were sitting there, and he started to play Avalon. And so we were following along one of his big songs that he always played. And my father played, and he pointed the clarinet toward my father. My father started to play a little solo, and he was listening. And then... After my father was done, he like looked at me like, okay, you have to play now. So I, I got to play a little solo in Benny Goodman's living room. That was oh, as close great. as I got. We opened for him on a number of concerts, so that was fun, too. That was the first time I got to Los Angeles was uh, opening for Benny Goodman with my father. And then uh, Rosemary Clooney is somebody else you did an album of duets with, yeah. in addition to supporting her as a, yeah, that as was, a guitarist for a while. Once again, Bucky Pizzarelli couldn't do the two all of the uh, the. 10 nights of a two-week run. So I subbed two nights in a row. And on the second night, and literally my father said, this is exactly what you will play. So here, now this is it. Now play it back. Okay, don't do anything else. <laughs> so I played it. And the second night, I actually, she actually said, you have a new record out. I want you to come out to uh, California and sing at our uh, Singer Salute Songwriters. And I was like, okay. She was just totally up on the new album. Like within a day, someone said, he's got a record out. I just read about it. And she was, from then on, uh, as generous as anyone was to me uh, for, oh, it must have been almost 20 years I knew her. In, in your book, you very much imply, but you never explicitly state, that a lot of these, oh, I can't make that gig, can you substitute, 
was really your dad kind of teeing you up with some of these people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I, uh, it's it was really lot. It was really fun on the various occasions that those things would happen. And then, you know, then he would bring me along also, aside from just subbing. He'd, he'd say, you know, we got this gig. And he'd say, oh, I'm going to bring my kid with me. He's going to play some duets. And so that happened a number of times where, you know, uh, some guys are going, oh, who's this 24-year-old with him? And then we, you know, we had worked so much, we were prepared to do anything. We, you know, we'd play four-hour gigs. So when we had to play 30 minutes somewhere, we were bulletproof, you know. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Pizzarelli. He is a highly regarded jazz guitarist and vocalist, specializing in, amongst other things, the Great American Songbook. And here we are. It's 2015. It is the centennial of Frank Sinatra's birthday. And about a decade ago, you released an album, Dear Mr. Sinatra. Yep. How how was that received? Actually, that was received quite well. I think you can put your name... Put Sinatra's name still means something. And in that particular case, it was the right time for me to make that record. And it was a unique record in that we didn't uh, copy any of the old arrangements. We had new arrangements written by John Clayton, uh, from who was a great bass player from the West Coast and arranger, and the, their band, the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. So I wanted to use a specific band with a specific sound. And inside of that homage was basically based on the songs that were written for Sinatra by people like Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen. So we used, and Cy Coleman, so we had Witchcraft and We Small Hours and Ring-a-Ding-Ding and The Last Dance. So there were these songs specifically written for Sinatra and then other ones from other records. So you eventually get the call to open for Sinatra on a tour. I guess they thought um, in Europe, perhaps the Germans weren't too keen on a stand-up comic. Yeah, they didn't have any. Uh, there's no such thing as a German comic. So. Right. And, and Don Rickles, probably not the right guy for that crowd, right. <laughs> to say the least. Such trouble. So, yeah, I got lucky because the, the, uh, I was with RCA here in uh, the United States. They were owned by the Bertelsmann Group of... Uh, in, and, BMG. BMG, based mm-hmm. in Germany. And uh, so the guy over there, Heinz Hen, sugge- uh, said, oh, Pizzarelli should do it. We were good friends. I had done a bunch of things over there. And sure enough, it all worked itself out. And I did a month tour of Europe to lead up to doing the, the six dates in Germany. So it was, it, was, it was really amazing because we couldn't believe it was going to happen. And then you're in the room and they're, you know, the rehearsal, the first rehearsal was the, that was the best because we brought, we put out the charts. I sat down, I, I stood in front of the band and in the first row was Frank Sinatra Jr. and Bill Miller, who was Sinatra's longtime piano player. Mm-hmm. And we played the charts down, took us as long as it was going to take in the show. It was like 25 minutes. I said, sounds great, fellas. Thanks a lot. <laughs> And Frank Sinatra Jr. says, that's it? I said, they sound great. And he's like, geez, it was Shirley MacLaine. It'd be another two hours and it still wouldn't be right. So we were laughing about that. But it was exciting. I said, well, the band's, you know, off to the, um, with Sinatra's band. It was amazing, you know. You tell a story about, and I'm trying to remember if this was either in concert or in the book. You're in like Atlanta or Georgia somewhere. It's a million degrees. Yeah. And he doesn't want to do a rehearsal. It's too damn hot. He came in, and uh, it was it's a 6,000-seat outdoor venue called Chastain Park. We got in a day early, so they got us there to rehearse. I was rehearsing. Someone said, Frank's here. Get the hell off the stage. <laughs> Just like that. So it was like, whoosh, you know, plates, cups, everything. <laughs> so we went running out. He had a jacket on the back that said, hurry up and wait. 
and uh, it was literally 100 degrees and he and that he had even a windbreak around was amazing and he started singing like he was going imagination is funny and junior his son they called him junior turned around and put his fist in front of sinatra's face and said you've got to fight it and sinatra looked at him like okay what do you want what do you want and he said uh what is America to me? The house I live in. And we were way out, just the six of us eating a pizza in the middle of the, the of 6,000 empty seats. And Sinatra sang three glorious songs. He sang that one, Come Rain or Come Shine, and Luck Be a Lady. We were crying. It was so brilliant. that we Just were destroyed like, the song. Just destroyed the, it. Just f- knocked it out of the park. We were weeping into our pizza. And then he said, uh, throw another log on the air conditioner, and he walked off. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually played with him also for a while. I, I opened the shows. I opened the 12 shows in the States and the 12 in the thing. And, and my last number was always Sing, 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 and I'd be playing that. And I'd look in the wings, and there was Sinatra snapping his fingers. And he would always come out and say, wasn't that fantastic? We'd always go. Wow. Boy, we could have we could have been easily sent back to the States at any time. Now, the first time you met him, he was uh, you you described that as a kind of interesting uh, Oh yeah, well, I after this long walk down a hallway and and his man Hank Catanio, the head production guy, was a fantastic fellow, uh, introduced me and we just sort of shook hands, Sinatra and I and and uh he just sort of looked at me and grumped, you know, well, Ugh. And I was about to walk away, and he said, eat something, you'll look bad. And, and then I walked away where everybody was laughing. That, that was like basically it. That's know? the words of wisdom. Yeah. Have something to eat, you don't look too good. <laughs> that's great. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Pizzarelli. He is a renowned guitarist, vocalist, rock contour, who has pretty much played with everybody in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, continue what we were discussing earlier about opening up for Frank Sinatra on the European and and American tour. Mm-hmm. What did that mean to you personally? You mentioned he was a hero of yours for so long. And and how did it impact you professionally? Well, I think it's it was a big deal. You know, I mean, I, the thing for me is was trying to uh, realize that there was no room for, I'm so nervous that it's Frank Sinatra. I mean, we really had to go out and do your 20 minutes. Whatever they said went, you know, and you knew... Uh, no fooling around. No fooling around, and no, there was really no time for uh, uh, butterflies. You just really had to go out and do the show and get it done. And uh, and it was also one of the you know the, the most people I'd played in front of, you know, when in uh, where were we in uh, Hamburg, in the back of Derby Park. We played along the back stretch of a, of a racetrack, and there was twenty thousand people there. Wow! You know? So you were going, oh, it's twenty thousand people. You know, I was just in uh, Nobody's Inn in Mawa in front of uh, 16 <laughs> beer drinkers. Right. So it was, you know, those kind of things. It was like, oh, you, you know, this is if this is where you desire to go, here you are. Now do what you do. Uh, so it was really, uh, it was interesting to be put in that situation without any, you know, and just go, okay, you're going to open for Frank Sinatra. And there were people like when we did it in the States too, uh, you know, you'd, my friend was on an elevator with two guys. I said, yeah, the kid wasn't so bad. You know, he did okay. He wasn't so nervous. <laughs> you know, people were really watching to see what the hell was going on. So that was sort of what was interesting about it. It was just that, you know, you've worked your life to get to this point. Now you have to deliver. And what about um, some of the overlap between music? Did They must have really run a, uh, a tight hand on your set list. They didn't, but I did because I made. I had to think, well, I'm not going to do all of me only because he's made a great record all of me and my all of me is not going to match up to people going, well, that's what that was. So I had 
three little words. I opened with an instrumental. I did, uh, I think the group played If I Had You. Uh, we, I know we closed with Sing, 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 and we had something else in the middle that we, we tried to stay away from. We had a little baby medley that was really great that Bill Miller particularly liked. Uh, so it had a little bassy thing in it. So it was pretty much just trying to steer clear of anything that was uh, too reminiscent of what Sinatra was doing. And it worked out pretty well. We had just enough stuff to, to make that happen. And you had a uh, a fun little song you used to play called "I Like Jersey Best," yeah, which was a uh, musical we, tribute slash parody. And we, uh, you know, I, my buddy Joe Cosgrove wrote the song, and we had been following us around New Jersey. And it was, and when we opened at the Garden State Arts Center, it was the one time when I said, "If if I do this song, they're going to love it, and Sinatra's going to kill me." I just didn't want to go near it, so I was all set. My father actually did that night with us, which was really terrific. So we had it all set up. We were all ready. It was just about to go on. And one of the ushers comes backstage and says, oh, by the way, Brendan Burns in the audience tonight. Which is a line in the song. He's in the song and he knows the he's in the former governor song. from- Former uh, governor. It's in our beautiful arena. Now it's had Brendan Byrne carved on the wall. So I knew he was like, he wanted to hear his song, you know, and hear his name. I was like, oh, I got to do the song now. Brendan Burns here. So I get, and then in the middle of the thing I did, I got away with it. But it was one of those things where I was- Trying to figure out, you know, I don't want to get too cute here. You know, you get a little too cute with Sinatra. It's not, you no, know, you never. You not know. a guy to mess with. Yeah. So a- that And that could have taken a, 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 if the crowd liked it too much. Yeah, it could have been big trouble. He might not have been too happy. So it worked out just right. And uh, the whole thing was fantastic. You know, it was funny. Once we closed opening for uh, Rosemary Clooney, we closed with Sing, Sing, Sing with the big band. And as I walked up, she was applauding. She was like, that was really terrific. You'll never open me again. <laughs> so, you know, she was uh, almost kidding. <laughs> the last the last thing an opener wants is the crowd really enthusiastic yeah, they about They want you just settle them in and get out right. of the way, please. That's hilarious. <laughs> so now let's talk a little bit about the future of music and, and what's going to be going on with all these changes. Really, the, the first question I have to ask is, is it the audience taste that's changing? Is it the technology that's changing? What is it that's driving this flux in the music industry? Well, I think the the one thing that works for me, since I'm not someone, my music, I'm not, record sales don't generate what I do. Which is the which is you know I make my records to so that they're almost like calling cards. You can say he's got a new record coming out, he'll come promote it at your club, and they and having done this now for 25 years, they know what I'm going to do. It, my my thing is about live performance. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that they can't take away from what goes on with everything else. So when when I was a kid, the story was when we were kids. When that's right, we're <laughs> we're about the same age. You would. A new record would come out, and a band would tour to promote the record. Right. What you're describing is the exact opposite. Hey, we want to go on tour. Let's put out a record so we have something to talk about on the road. Yeah, they will say, well, does he have a new album out? We can come back if he has a new album out. And so, it, and it really isn't about, I mean, for me, the I think the most records of one record might either Bossa Nova or the Sinatra record was up around between forty and 50,000. That's a lot of records for me. Mm-hmm. That's the first of yours I've ever bought. Well, there you go. Bossa Nova, and absolutely. Hence why those sales were so good. I mean, I think there's like Sinatra and Bossa Nova are, you know, they're, they're gold, as they say. It's gold, Jerry. <laughs> but it's, uh, that's the thing. So uh, I've had a couple of, and the Nat Cole records worked very well for me. So, uh, but now, uh, 
it's a different ball game, and it's mostly about getting out to perform. That's the one thing they can't change is no, going can, to play. You can't download a live performance and have the same experience yeah. as being at a live performance. Right. You know, that's the thing. So, you know, when you get 2,300 people in a room to hear Sinatra music and you have the best guys in New York, that's how you make your career. You got to... you you. I've spent a lot of money putting those, getting those arrangements together. I have uh, so many arrangements written by Don Sebesky or John Clayton, really good arranged, solid arrangements. So when you go play with the Boston Pops or you got to play with the New York, that's where your investment is. So people go, wow, that was really great. I wonder if he can do a Gershwin show because that Rogers show was fantastic. Let's get him back next year. You know, you spend so, that so when your you, investment. So let's talk about that. So when you buy an arrangement, when you have somebody create an arrangement for you, is that yours and yours exclusively, or is it like an architect? Is he selling that same plan to other people? Well, John, or is it a one-off? John Clayton has sold some of like some of those charts, like Nice and Easy. I know that he's made some of them available, which is fine. You know that uh, he's made them available uh, to people to buy. So, like I think one or two of those charts he are, he's put out there. My things I get uh, mostly like the Don Sebesky things, the things that I work for hire. I get them. I keep them. So you I, own I, them. No one else has that arrangement. Right. And sometimes someone would say, can I borrow your, your charter? About, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll let my friend borrow it to play with a college band or something like that. But mostly it's all work for hire. So like when you make a record, you want to spend, you know, you really want to make sure you, you get great arrangements because they're going to follow you around for 25 years. So I, I mentioned I'm a big fan of Radio Deluxe. That's weekly syndicated over quite a number of stations. About 40, right? 40 stations, and it's on uh, what they call, uh, is it Mixcloud? Mixcloud.com. You can punch in Radio Deluxe and hear the show. Mm -hmm. And there's several past shows there, too. So uh, it's just was something where they wanted to bottle what it was that my wife and I were doing. We started doing it at Feinstein's in our nightclub act. Mm -hmm. You know, she'd say hello, I'd say hello. People would laugh and say, that's great. <laughs> you know, so we, we they... And they, you know, talked to some people, and then next thing you know, I'm behind a mic going from high atop Lexington Avenue. You're in the deluxe living room. It's Radio Deluxe. How you doing, Jessica? And she'd talk, and then say, "Well, you know, that reminds me of that Frank Sinatra record. Let's play it now." And so, but it's for people who may not be familiar with it. First of all, you go to Radio Deluxe with John dot com. Yeah. If that, if I'm getting the URL, John dot com, and then you click on Radio Deluxe. Okay. And um. There appears to be a lot of thought and a lot of consideration that goes into the selection. It's not just, all right, let's put the shuffle mix on and see right. what comes out. There's an arc and a story that gets told across two hours of music. Yeah. Um, what what I do, I work early in the morning at my computer. Sunday that comes out. On Monday morning, I have it teed up. Oh. And I listen to it all week until I finish... Uh, you know, each morning oh, it's my my background music. You know, that's the thing we we talk about it. You know, we don't. It's one of those things where we we haven't made a dime on it. <laughs> we do it all at home, and every time we say, you know, we have to do this show again, we got to set up the stuff. You know, because we're just knuckleheads. You know, we just you know. But people tell us these stories. We've had we were talking about it just today. You know, where somebody will say, you know, I take my I go visit my mother in this home. And then on Sunday nights, I leave or there, you know, I say goodbye and I coincides with you being on the radio here in Illinois. And that two hour drive back is Radio Deluxe. And I just think, oh, so changes my attitude after what I had to do, you know, and we just get these letters and go, well, we, it's, you know, we call it the, the broke back radio program. We can't quit it. 
It's just crazy. We can't quit it. We've been speaking with John Pizzarelli. He can be found at johnpizzarelli.com. Be sure and check out Radio Deluxe is his weekly radio show. It's free. You can access it online. His book is World on a String. And check out his entire discography. I'll put a few links to some of my favorite CDs. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around. We'll continue it on the podcast extras. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, welcome to the podcast portion of our show. I'm really excited about our guest this week, and you guys know I listen. I usually speak with someone from finance or the world of business or investing, but I wanted to work a little bit outside of that box, and for that purpose today, I brought in John Pizzarelli. Uh, Full disclosure, I've seen his show three or four times over the years, and each one has been just wonderful. There's so much stuff to go over with you. I'm going to I'm going to embarrass you a little bit and then we'll talk about some other stuff. Um first, I mentioned in the intro to the radio portion, everybody describes your charming stage presence. <laughs> you really have become like this storytelling raconteur. I want to say almost a third of the show is you telling stories. <laughs> how did that how did that ever develop? Um I think it was I always liked that version of it. I mean, actually, I was a, a fan of... It started with the early Cosby records, and then it went to the George Carlin records, and then I used to watch Carson all the time, and I used to love these monologues and these little stories that, you know, saturated the programs. And I like the idea of trying to set up songs or, you know, of do this little these bits that, you know settled people in a little bit gave them a, an idea of what was going on and maybe it was a joke or maybe it was a it was just a fact that was well presented that made people go oh well then i really want to hear what's going on now now i can hear oh that's what that was so that's where that came from how was that song written that's an interesting thing so the more i hung around people like jonathan schwartz who's on the radio here uh-huh, in new york sure. i would try and pay attention or i would give him a call and say you know you, you kept talking about that song how does that song get to sinatra and he would tell me a story about it you know, there's several different versions. So, it, and I would add these things, would read things, find things that were funny or or of interest that made interest to me that I could throw into a show that would. I just love that part of the thing because I think people go, well, I not only just heard the songs, I didn't hear you say, here's another great song. You know, this is a great song. Here's another great song. Didn't want to sound like that. I wanted to say, you know, what's interesting about this song is this. You know, you tell a story. Was it the Smithsonian? Oh, with the, somebody's piano? Yeah, my my uh, piano player a couple of years ago, Ray Kennedy, and we went to the Smithsonian. <laughs> I think I heard you tell this about seven years ago, six years yeah, ago. Yeah, probably and, more than that. And I, where we, we went to the thing, uh, the Smithsonian, and they said, that's Gershwin's piano. And you, you why don't you play it? And so uh, Ray stepped over the, the ropes. Who, and, who said this to Ray? The, the person in the place said, go play, the, you know, you can play it. Okay, so he stepped over the ropes. As he stepped over the ropes and got up, there was this thing. It said, step away from the piano. Step away, and the lights were flashing. Get away from the piano. And they said, don't worry, it goes away. He said, okay. So he sat down at the piano and he went, ba da 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 do da And he started to play this beautiful stride version of They Can't Take That Away From Me. And we always laugh because then we were hoping the voice would say, uh, do you know I got rhythm? <laughs> it was just so great. <laughs> and these are the sort of uh, 
you know, amazing. The things that we run into, you know, they, they all, these things happen. You know, the gigs with Bucky at the Pierre when I was first 20 years old. Pierre and, Hotel. Yeah. So you're barely out of high school and you're playing professional gigs with your dad. I did an Pierre. entire summer with him in 1980 and, uh, uh, it was, you know, I knew seven songs for a four-hour gig, and he would just pound melodies out at me and go, you don't know this, you know, under his breath. And I'm wearing tuxes. Oh, I know, yeah. And I'm just trying to find chords, you know. It was ear training every night. Just, every night. Oh, it was unbelievable. That That's amazing. So, <laughs> so I know how you found jazz. It was in your house. So growing up in the 60s, it was all about rock and roll. My mother had gone to music and art. She played piano she and did. drums and saxophone, but piano was her instrument. Wow. And um, it's funny because I go off to college and grad school, and back then, everybody is completely broke. You're poor, put yourself through state school and then grad school, and we all would swap albums and record them, and I borrow, um, it's really a funny story. I borrow a triple disc from a friend Linda Ronstadt with the Nelson Riddle oh, Orchestra yeah. doing What's New for Sentimental Reasons. And I. And Lush Life, I think, was the third uh, um Round Midnight? Round Midnight. And um, see, I have the advantage of having gone back and looked at all my purchases right. not too long ago. <laughs> and I think I've discovered the greatest music ever played. And I go home to play it for my mother. I'm going to impress my mom who mocks every rock and roll song. Yeah, yeah, three chord progression. <laughs> Find me something more interesting. Every now and then she would say, who's the guy with the flute? I, I don't normally hear that. <laughs> Ma, that's Ian Anderson, Jeff Rotel. <laughs> so I, I play her Linda Ronstadt and she shrugs and rolls her eyes. I'm like, this is I go, this Jerome Kern and, and Gershwin. And these, are, these are Rogers and Hart, these are your people. So every song on that triple disc album, I'm not exaggerating, Every single song, I'd play a song and she goes, go listen to the Sarah Vaughan version of it. I'd play another song. Ella, uh, that's the definitive <laughs> version. Go listen to Ella. Um, who else did she did? would she send me to? Uh, Billy Holland, go down the list. Frank Sinatra. And each and every time I would play a song, and then not that much later, not that many years after that, I'm out of grad school, and I finally have two nickels to rub together, and I get the Ella Fitzgerald Great American Songbook. It's 16 CDs. It's like the most expensive thing I've ever bought, including furniture. <laughs> and I take now it's on CDs. We've advanced that far. And I start playing it, and I'm like, oh, my God, my mother was right about everything. I have to go rethink my entire childhood because she, if she's that right about this. But it's the beauty of the record. You know, it's, it's the other thing is that Linda Ronstadt knew that Nelson Riddle was important. And she had to make records with him. And so the fact that those three records got you to those 16 mm -hmm. is the whole, is why the thing works. You know, it's the other thing about our radio program, Radio Deluxe, is that you can play Sinatra and you can play Nat Cole, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and say, now these people, you can go to uh, Kurt Elling or Tierney Sutton or Stacey Kent or Curtis Stigers or... You just had Curtis Steiger, was it last week or this week? Yeah, probably last week. You know, mm -hmm. but you, you can find these people now. They see that they are the ones who heard those records and are doing this. And we try to cross it, you know. And the same thing how you can even get to, believe it or not, you can get to Joni Mitchell from Annie Ross because Lambert Hendrickson Ross was a direct uh, inf uh, influence on Joni Mitchell. So these things all 
cross-pollinate, and that's why it's so fun about the show, is that is what you're talking about. How Linda Ronstadt got you to Sarah Vaughan is the same way how, uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald got you to Jane Monheit. There was, there was actually, in between Ella and the Linda Ronstadt, was the Nelson Riddle Sinatra trilogy. Yeah. Which I liked, and your friend got into trouble for blasting right. the third one, which I always thought was good, but the weakest of the three. Yeah. So the Sinatra trilogy, and again, that was one of those things you, the first time you hear that, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing stuff. How come I'm not hearing this on the radio? Oh, it was recorded 30 years ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, still, it doesn't have lasting. You should still be hearing that right. sort of stuff. So that that's pretty amazing. It was... um. And Jonathan Schwartz, I think, got uh, fired over that or suspended. Suspended for like six months, I think. For trashing that third. Uh, he said it was. I think he said it was a piece of garbage or something. Really, he, he didn't like it. <laughs> and and well, it was clearly the weakest of the. Three. Well, he didn't like. He's he's not a Gordon Jenkins fan, and Gordon Jenkins wrote all that music for that, and so he was sort of like, nah, I'm not. Didn't, didn't go. I want to hear more of the the, the Jerome Kern and the and there's because he was uh, Jonathan still said you know there's. He has the list of songs that Sinatra has never recorded. You know, there's no record of Swonderful. There's no The More I See You. So he's like, "There's there. Why not those songs? Right. Where were they? You know." So it's should, should have been done. Since I I brought up my mom, she said um, her favorite pianist was George Shearing. Oh, man. and she wants to know why you didn't record Lullaby of Birdland with him. I think there's enough of records of that for him. <laughs> there's a there's a ton of that. She goes, oh, I just always loved his. I'm going to say this wrong. The augmented chords. Oh yeah, as a sure. non-musician, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Well, and the whole thing about the sound of that, the way the piano and the, the vibraphone and the guitar played together, uh, was a very unique sound. And "Lullaby of Birdland" being his big hit, I chose "Be Careful, It's My Heart" because that was from a record we had in the house of the Shearing Group. So we homage that. And then the other one was. Uh, uh, there were a lot of songs on that. If, if I dreams remember. come true, yeah. It's a, there's a lot of songs on that one. That's one of those CD things. You know, we need twenty more minutes. You know, but uh, 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 if dreams come true was based. On, it's the arrangement that he did with uh, Peggy Lee. So there are a couple like that that I picked out, and then a couple of new ones too. So the, you know, that's the thing. You got so many choices with with uh, George. You know, he was just great, to to say the least. Um, so. You ever change a show or a song in response to audience reaction during the show or for the rest of the tour? How, do, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, when you're promoting a record in particular, like if we promote a record, uh, there was one called Double Exposure, where we ended up doing songs like Harvest, Harvest Moon, Free mm-hmm. Man in Paris. Uh, there was one, there was a Beatles song on there called I Feel Fine. And uh-huh. then we did a Tom Waits song into a Ellington song. We did a... Uh, Drunk on the Moon, so the th- into Lush Life and out back to Drunk on the Moon, so you would play them live and you'd say, okay, that one didn't seem to go over so well, but everybody seemed to like the Lush Life and the the Tom Waits thing, so we keep that one in. So you'd start like when you really start to go places and think you're gonna pick these five from that record. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you know there's some people don't like one in particular. You know, I try to do all of them and then see what happens. Mm-hmm. So uh, it does change from time to time, and then you keep the good ones in, and then you can. Uh, you hope that you're going to add other ones along the way. You know. <laughs> are you Are you ever surprised at what works and doesn't work? Some sometimes you think, "Hey, this is great," and the audience doesn't respond. And yeah. Other throwaways, they just love. Right. It's actually, you know, what's surprising is this this Johnny Mercer thing. I literally went into Birdland last year and and recorded 
20 Johnny Mercer songs, Don Sebesky arrangements, four horns, rhythm section. And uh, I put it out myself. I just said I needed something to get me to the next record, but I said, this is a good little piece of business. And song after song absolutely kills. Right. I mean, I was sort of like, where was this record years ago? Right. <laughs> I did a record of Rogers, Richard Rogers, that wasn't as popular as this. You know, it's just amazing. They, they're, they're, maybe it's just the idea that there's enough uh, oddball materials, I call it, the weird, you know, the outside of the lines things, as well as the hits that people go, oh, I love Skylark. Mm-hmm. I love I Thought About You. And then you say, well, what's this I got out of bed on the right side? What's this other one that you did? Uh, Slewfoot. Where's that from? And you set them up and all of a sudden people go, oh, that's great. I just shake my head. I go, oh, okay, thank God for that. You know? It's been around forever and nobody really is, you know, uh, has been pushing and there's it. And you know, there's books of, uh, well, the, I made the thing last year, so I just put it out and uh, it's been fun to tour around, you know? So it's like, well, that'll work. That'll play for a while. <laughs> I can. Well, the songs are not exactly written last month. That's they, the other they thing. They have longevity, clearly. They're playing goody-goody. Right. And people go nuts, you know? It was written in the 30s, you know? That's the other thing, too, that's important about I think the presentation that you you gotta, you know, if you lead them in the right directions, it doesn't matter when, what songs you're doing and when they were written. But if you let them know where you're headed, I think that's the most important thing. I think you, if you tell them, here's where we're going, trust me. And eventually they'll say, oh, well, that Harvest Moon thing was really good. Oh, that's a Neil Young song. Well, that was all right. I sort of like that one. So uh, that's good. You know, you got to let them know because, you know, there's there are dyed in the wool uh, songbook people, you know, I don't like anything written after 1964. Okay, well, try this one. And, you know, and you hope that you can lead them in the right direction. You played something recently on the show from, I want to say her name is Katie Malua, Malula. Oh, yeah, my wife plays that one, yeah. So I recognized her voice immediately, and I have to punch her name into my iTunes. She does this amazing cover. She's got this beautiful, lilting voice. Yeah. She does this cover of a Cure song, and I don't know how well you know The Cure, but it's like relentlessly depressing, emo, 80s <laughs> sort of stuff. Like it was, it, or maybe even 90s sort of stuff. And um, was it, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the song. It was off of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. And it's just this normally um, just depressing, terrible. I mean, I was a Cure fan, but they were just like, you had to be willing it's to like go enough down already. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. That like, all right, I'll play a song and that's it. You got to move on. And her version is just so amazing. And you find that sometimes with cover songs that yeah. you get somebody just taking a completely different spin, like like the Neil Young song. People who may never listen to Neil Young might appreciate the sort of uh, the sort of stuff he does. Yeah. If it's presented in, in, in a way that's more palatable to them. Right. Well, you know, and uh, the thing is, is that you're trying to get the people who listen to Neil Young or who are interested in that and who go, same, do the same thing that they did with the Ronstadt record for you. It's like they go, oh, well, that was sort of interesting that you put a jazz song, say, with uh, I Feel Fine. We put a little thing up front of the Sidewinder, which is a Lee Morgan cut. Right. And then they go, oh, well, maybe they're going to discover something else. I was really felt that way about the Beatle record. I thought yeah. the Beatle record, because we we were mixing in Woody Herman into uh, the Woody Herman band. We were putting the Basie band sound. We had orchestra things. I really thought we were presenting the Beatles in a completely new way. And in the United States, they were a little freaked out by it. I always say, you know. Why Pete, is that? 
I have no idea. But, you know, it has lasted. It is, it's the most love-hated record that I have out there. Really? But, you know, the, 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 the happy ending for me was when I worked with Paul McCartney. The first day he walked into the studio, he, I, they said, Paul McCartney, John Pizzarelli, and he said, you made a Beatles CD. <laughs> and I said, yes, I did. And he said, it's very good. And he walked away, and I was like, "Well, that, the day started out quite fine, you know." That, so that's on. I have a, ha- I have a. Ha- the problem with the Beatles songs is that you know them so well. That's right. That when you hear it and it's different, it can be jarring. Sure. So I have two different Beatles CD covers that I play just for that reason. This is one of them, and the other one. I don't know if you know um, Larry. Jubel? No. LJ is his nickname. Oh. He's, when Paul McCartney was playing with Wings, he was his guitarist. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, look who I'm talking to. You would appreciate this. This is just pure, just one guy, no overdub, acoustic guitar, playing the rhythm and the vocals oh, wow. on guitar. And like yours, they're very different. They're very fresh. And I know that song, but this is a completely different version of it. The problem with the covers are they usually sound too much like the original. Yeah, they just copy the original. Right, and what's the value of that? Oh, somebody did a great cover. I said, well, it's the same thing. Right, that's exactly it. So we we actually try to homage things in and out inside little things. The little hints that we you know you know the hard thing for me was not singing like the Beatles sang. Right, you very much do a jazz version of the Beatles, not a cover version of right. the Beatles. And that was the idea. That's what jazz records are. You know, if you took all of me, you wouldn't do somebody else's record of all of me, or it had to be you, or something. You would, you know, you would say, "Here's my version of it." So you're on the road pretty pretty often. You do 150 or so. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so. Are you? What do you do to keep kill time on the road? Do you read? Do you listen to music? What <laughs> what what occupies your time? Uh, let's see. That's a very good question. We, you know, we we uh, I do try to read a very. I've read a. I read a cooking book. Was the last book I read by the woman who owns Prune. Her name's Gabrielle Hamilton. Okay. So I like to, and I read about how she got into cooking because I really am interested in that. Uh, I like to, and I, you know, I'm always working on the next thing. So I'm sometimes looking at music or reading, you know, listening to what I just recorded and, uh, seeing what needs to be done on those things. So there's a lot of business that gets done during the day and sometimes, and sometimes I just sit in a room and I can watch sports center until the cows come home. Really? You know, you know, that's, you know, that'll be about that. With all my guests, there's always three or four questions I ask everybody mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask you a version of them here. So Someone who's a millennial just getting out of college now and is interested in a career in music, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, uh, they've, they've probably studied since high school what, what kind of music they like because they can do that now. You know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can pretty much discover what you're into at such an earlier age, I think. So I think the, the thing is, is, to, uh, is to get out and play, is to find places to play. Uh, where you can spend a couple of hours in a room. Because the more you play in front of people, I feel that that's always, that's, you know, you can practice all you want in the room and you're going to go, oh, I sound so good today, you know, playing in, in my living room. But the second you get in front of somebody and your hand starts to sweat a little bit and, you know, you drop your pick and everybody's looking at you. I think that it's just about trying to find uh, ways to get out there and play, find groups to play with, or, or if you're a guitarist or piano player, solo gigs, whatever. You know, it's very difficult to play a solo gig for four hours. 
So, you know, you've got to build a repertoire, and that's all those things are things that I did anyway. I thought they were very useful. And by the time I was ready to step into my own thing, I felt a little more comfortable because I had been doing it already for a long time. So get out and play in front of people. Yeah. Um, we talked about some of the changes in the industry, but um, what changes have there been within the music industry, and what future changes do you expect that's going to alter the way people listen to and and find music? I think the there's uh, the fact that it's funny. My friend the other day set up a his stereo in his room because his son moved out finally, you know, one of those things. And he said, you know, when I put up the speakers, like I used to have bookshelf speakers and I had a, I had a, a my CD player and an amplifier and turned it on. And, and I was like, Oh my God, music in the room. You know, everybody listens with headphones. Right. Now. It's so weird how people listen, you know, and they don't, and those are terrible sound quality, typically. Yeah, you know, but I mean, you can get good headphones, but like nobody sits in their room, it seems to me, and puts on their stereo and goes, okay, music. With, you know, I went to Radio Shack, I had 12-inch speakers, bookshelf speakers, they were so great to listen to. You know, it's just the way people listen. What do they listen on? Do they download immediately to a device? Are they, They're rarely buying actual product anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's the weird thing, too, is that, I'm lucky because my people who come to my gigs want to get something at the end. They'll buy the CD, so you'll sign it and take it home. Oh, I got something, you know. And you, how long have you been doing that? You, every time I've seen you, you actually hang around after the show. People wait online. Yeah. And they, you chat, you take selfies, you do what have you. When did when did that come about? It started. It's been uh, whenever we could get the records there. We do it. I mean, I've been saying, you know, for the most part, that's the way to meet the people who are coming to hear you. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you'll meet, like at the Tillis Center, you meet people say, you know, 20 years ago, it was me, and now I'm bringing my kids. Or, you know, I decided, I knew my parents would like this, so I brought them here. And they were like, well, yeah, we couldn't believe how good this was. You know, it's really <laughs> sweet. So I like to see what's going on. Who's coming to these concerts? You know, how old are they? How young are they? You know, are they been here for a long time? Is this their first time? It's It's really... I do my own little thing. I mean, I don't write down what it is, but it's interesting to see who's coming. And But that means a gig that starts at 8, that you finish on stage at 10, you're not leaving the place till 11.30 at night. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it's just a bunch of people. The Tillis Center, it's a, it was it was wild. It was just this long line of people. And I was just so amazed at it, that people were that patient about it. But I say, listen, I'm not going to go anywhere. So if you're patient, I'm patient. You know, I know it's important to them. I would love to go to a Pat Metheny concert and see Pat Metheny afterwards, you know, and say. For sure. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm very, I love that. I can, you know, when because of who I am, I can go backstage at most places, at mm -hmm. jazz concerts anyway. Not, <laughs> but I mean. Uh, it's nice. I like to make myself available because it's important to keep it all going. So I never do that. And this one show, I, I like I said, this is the third or fourth time I saw you. I uh, I said to my wife, I go, wow, look at all these people waiting online. She's like, do you want to do that? I go, why would I do that? Am I going to ask him to be on the radio? And she goes, yeah, why don't you ask him to be on the radio? <laughs> Oh, you know, that's a good idea. So you have your wife, I have mine. I know, right? Who occasionally reminds me I'm an idiot. That's right. <laughs> get, get online, get a CD, get online, and invite them on the show. Oh, okay, good, good idea. Here we are. Um, so the last question I always we're gonna we're gonna get the guitar out and play a song or mm -hmm. two. But the last question I ask everybody, and I always get some interesting responses, is 
What do you know about your chosen field, your industry today, that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Ooh. I think the thing, the thing that I know, I don't know, you know, I it, I think the, I think that I thought I knew everything when I was starting out. Like mm -hmm. when I made my first record called All of Me on RCA, which was a big deal for me, I really thought that I had, I had my handle on it. I mean, I really thought I was, I really felt confident about it, but I realized Actually, when I made my first, I didn't really sing well. I don't think that my singing got any better. I really felt it took a while to get good at it. Whereas I thought at the very beginning, I was, I thought, well, it's, you know, it's really good. And then I go back and listen to it. I go, boy, oh boy, I'm lucky to still be standing here, you know. So it was interesting that Trist, I really thought I knew a lot at the beginning, but I didn't really, I, I didn't really know that much. I really learned a lot as I went along and I realized how much the performing aspect of it was. And sort of, you know, just, you know, the idea of uh, sanding off the rough edges, you know, and knowing, oh, I see, you know, where all the economy in it was. You know, that, not to, to do too much, you know. That's quite interesting. All right, so you brought your guitar. The guitar's over here. What would you like to... Uh... I usually play I Got Rhythm because it's my most show-off-y thing. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> I got a few other names to run by you later. Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll bounce until they kick us out of the studio. Charlie, is that other mic uh, ready to rock and roll? Or jazz, as the here. case may be? I can put it in place. I'm just going to pick. Always in the uh, right pocket? Is that what you always keep them? Always there. There's a little pick area for them. <laughs> when did your mother graduate music and art? I want to say, uh, there goes uh, Charlie Pallet, by the way. Um, voice of the subway. I want to say... <laughs> 1948 oh, wow. or so, something like that. We just did the gala for them the other night. Uh, my daughter goes to LaGuardia. Oh, really? So that's a... She went from music and art um, to Hunter College. Wow. Sorry. How's that sound in there? You ready? Uh, here we go. And this is a John Pizzarelli model. Yeah. That's outstanding. Made by Bill Mole from Springfield, Missouri, and uh, this would this is like my favorite one he's made. There's a new one that I'm playing now. This has some miles on it. This has definitely got miles on it. <laughs> I have a a case made by a gentleman named Jeff Hoffy, out of out of uh, just out of Chicago, and uh, uh, I just always take a picture of it. I say, here's the guitar going on the you know. <laughs> And it always survives, you know, it's, it's, it's so, uh, that's the one thing that's changed the most is they finally can make a case that will protect these guitars. But this one I've just thrown around so much, it's not the case, it's the guitar player. So here is I Got Rhythm. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my guy, look at us for anything more. I got daisies in green pastures. I got my gal, look at us for anything more. Old man trouble, I don't mind him. You won't find him at my door. I got starlight, I got sweet dreams. I got my gal, look at us for anything more. Who can ask for anything more? <laughs> Dun 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 d
for anything more fantastic Did we get it Did we get it <laughs> charlie said let's do it again one more time no, just kidding. that's fantastic and about halfway through it i'm like why aren't i recording this on my phone i'm so stupid john <laughs> take this your phone is, out you got your phone uh i do here we go you gonna do it again i'll play something else hold on <laughs> well let me grab my phone wherever i put it with the ringer off how we doing time wise charlie we good Fantastic. All right, so I'm going to do one uh, quick video. All right, what are we going to do now? Here we go. You ready? The way you wear your hat. The way you sip your tea. The memory of all that. No, they can't take that away from me. The way your smile just beams. The way you sing off key. The way you haunt my dreams No, they can't take that away from me We may never, never meet again On the bumpy road to love Still I'll always, always keep the memory of The way you hold your knife The way we dance till three The way you change my life no, they can't take that away from me. No, they can't take that away from me. Fantastic. I have to put this down to applaud. Do we get all that? All right, fantastic. John, I can't begin to tell you how much fun I can't this begin was. To tell you. I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad we, we had this time together. <laughs> I, everything I say is a lyric. I have. I have a hundred other questions I didn't get to. Anytime. I, want, I wanted to discuss. God, Joe Williams. I don't know. You know. You. I've never heard you mention Mose Allison, who yeah. I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, John Coltrane does a, an album with Johnny Hartman that I just adore. Yeah, and the other one is the ballads record of just Johnny Hartman playing yes. the ballads. I uh, just, just he's he's amazing. Yeah, and I have a song. I was curious as to <laughs> if you've ever heard this version. It's an oddball version that's probably outside of your sphere, but you may like it for the show. And if I tell you the derivation of it, you'll understand why it's so ridiculous. There was a a girl. She was a girl on a sitcom. She was thirteen, fourteen. Her name is Renee Olstead. Oh, yeah. And she does a version of Summertime that is, when you think that it's a 14-year-old kid, you would say, 
what the heck is this? It's so amazing. Oh wow! That um, I was going to suggest you check it out, uh, but that's a throwaway. I know you play Madeline Perot and Diana Krall, and yeah. I love Julie London. Yeah, you're all over that. <laughs> I haven't heard Melody Gardot, but she's an interesting new. Oh, we vocalist. used to play her. At, we played her. We actually got her to to um, uh, Schwartz. Oh really? That was one that like Jessica found. We I don't know if we had the record got to us or we looked. You know we always just go on and see new releases and we jump on them right away. And she was somebody we got at right at the very beginning. She she's an interesting story. Oh, what a story! And car crash and everything yeah. else. Anyway, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being so oh, generous with your time. I'm gonna have Charlie come in and take a, a photo uh, of us. Great. And I'm gonna ask you to sign the book. Um, if people want to find you, they can go to johnpizzarelli.com mm-hmm. and all your discs, books, everything else, yeah. tour date information is there. All is all there. And You're I, all over the country now. You can me. like me on Facebook. I'll be out on the West Coast uh, the first, uh, second two weeks, second two weeks of August, and also doing a week at Birdland, July 28th, and the new album, which we'll come back and talk about at length, is called, Mid- okay. it'll be called Midnight McCartney. It's all... Paul McCartney songs done after the Beatles. Oh, really? Silly love songs, No More Lonely Nights, and all that stuff. And it's Paul McCartney approved. All right, great. (laughs) You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Be sure and check us out next week.